Hello, welcome to Science Book Shambles. This is a new series of conversations with scientists and science authors in addition to the usual weekly Sunday Q&A live stream and podcast. And you can hear an extended version of this interview by supporting us on Patreon at patreon.com slash cosmic shambles. We really do need your support as much as possible. We're trying to keep making loads of different things. And due to the end of kind of all of our live work, uh, patreon.com is the way that we're trying to fund ourselves at the moment. So thank you very much. Hello, welcome to Science Shambles. Producer Trent here. A reminder off the top that there is no compendium of reason or nine lessons and carols for curious people this year for obvious reasons. Well, at least there's no there's no version of them in the usual sense. What we are doing is combining them to create nine lessons and carols for socially distanced people, a 24-hour show of science and music and comedy. So all the things you'd expect from the live show. We're going to be broadcasting live for 24 hours from King's Place in a studio there. We're turning Hall 2 into our broadcast station for the duration of the show. There are some socially distanced tickets available from the King's Place website. There's not a lot of them and a lot of them have already gone. So go to kingsplace.co.uk slash nine lessons to get those. Or you can watch the entire thing live online from the Cosmic Shambles website it will be free to watch, but you can buy a virtual ticket that helps us cover our costs and then everything else goes to charity, which is the case with all these Christmas shows anyway. Crowdfunder.co.uk slash nine lessons is where you can go to contribute to that. And you can go to the main Cosmic Shambles nine lessons site to find out all the other bits and pieces of info, who's on. We've announced 50 guests already. Uh, there's at least another 50 confirmed that we haven't announced and there'll be more added as well. Uh, it's 24 hours, but we'll overrun. Of course we will. Brian Cox, Chris Hadfield, Helen Sharman, Jocelyn Belburnell, uh, Tanita Tickerham, Sophie Ellis-Bexter, Mark Watson, all sorts of amazing people. Go and have a look at that. Now let's move on to today's episode of the podcast. Today, Robin is talking to Dr. Camilla Pang, whose new book, Explaining Humans, has just been nominated for the Royal Society Book Prize. So we spoke to her a couple of weeks ago, uh, right after the nominations came out, actually, about her book. Hope you enjoy the conversation. Hello, welcome to Science Shambles. And uh, today's Science Shambles is uh, is someone who's just been nominated for the Royal Society Book Prize, which is a, a fantastic prize and highlights uh, some of the, the most intriguing and enlightening science books that come out every year. And uh, it's, a, it's a book that I just engage with immediately because it's, it's a beautiful explanation of trying to understand why human beings are as they are from the perspective of science it's it, it's like it's hard to explain because it, there's a level of it which is like a self-help book but there's another level of it which also is it's a book of uh particle physics of cosmology of equations of understanding via that route and uh, so we're joined by the author of explaining humans dr camilla pang um Camilla, this book is, uh, we were talking before we started recording about Richard Feynman, and I always enjoy the fact that R Richard Feynman would talk sometimes about how you need to look at human beings sometimes from the perspective of a Martian. You need to become almost an anthropologist who is not part of your own species. You need to detach yourself. And it seems to me that a lot of this book and a lot of your life has been doing that 
Yes, um, completely. And I think that's perfectly articulated, um, especially because I, I often uh, feel like a, a, um, a Martian on, on Earth and I'm trying to navigate what um, what's what and how to um, navigate the social norms and the expressions and what do I make of these different senses and how do they and what, what does that mean in terms of someone's intention or or being able to I don't know just interact with them and so I feel like a lot of the time I'm living life from the ground up and I'm trying to make sense so that I can be be normal and when I say be normal I don't mean like masking who I am but to withhold a conversation so that people understand and connect and I think this is something that I just want to highlight a little bit is that um so I've got autistic spectrum disorder but um I that's also called high functioning autism or um, Asperger's syndrome and so sometimes everyone's like oh but you don't look autistic that's because I'm working really hard to be able to interact with you in a normal way so I think it's a uh, bit of a superpower in itself to be able to communicate when inherently you're trying to figure out that smell and whether that's you know um something that's very different um is that a signal that you should is that a red flag or is it just a smell or that you know the texture is something like everything means something and it's hard to decipher and prioritize what those are so that you can interact with the person do you think there there is a, a there's a, a comic in in Canada young young he's only I was probably about twenty now I probably met him when he was seventeen he he goes by he calls himself the Aspie comic and he has found that dealing with his Aspergers he is and he's a great comic and and socially you know I we find there's a lot of common ground that we can do but what he finds frustrating is that the moment that people have an awareness that you're on the autistic spectrum uh, then there are immediate presumptions of what as, as you said either the the powers that you won't have or as you said also the superpowers that you do have yeah definitely there's um it's quite ironic actually because um i think the nat- i mean everyone has a different kind of uh, manifestation of their autism and all the neurodivergences but for me in particular um, which is, I think, one of the hallmarks of, in, you know, interacting as an Aspie, um, is that you have none of these assumptions or preconceptions. I look at everyone with fresh eyes because I'm like, well, why, why would I assume that about you? Um, I mean, I'm more likely to judge you based on how you smell. Um, <laughs> I mean, it's all sensory, but that's the irony of it. When you say to someone, I'm autistic, they don't know really not to make of that, and so they, they assume that you can't, they, they, they're, for lack of a better word, ignorance of how autism can manifest can also limit the horizon in which they see that person. And I think this is a limiting that is imposed on us as opposed to us actually having the opportunity to express ourselves before we've even had the opening to. So, uh, yeah, it's um, it's definitely an interesting one that I want to shed light onto. And superpowers, I don't want to trivialise mental health for starters. And I do believe that everyone has that right to be regardless of whether the superpowers are useful to the neurotypical, but it's very important to highlight this difference and it being an opportunity for a human to live in a different way, to just exist in a, in a, in a different world that isn't, and it might not fit into the norm, but that doesn't mean it's bad. It just, it's more to do with the intolerances of the system as opposed to the lack of superpowers or, you know, or faults of the person. It's just, 
a backwards way of looking at it. And I think when people judge people that have autism or neurodivergences or mental health, it can their limitations are pretty much the only limitations. I wanted to ask a little at, at, at the introduction of the book. You you talk about that moment of discovering your uncle's science books. You're seven years old, and what was it when you first opened that? Because I think for for many people that f- that that first engagement with science sometimes it's an image, sometimes it's a sentence, sometimes that moment of going this is a you know it's 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 a not just a, a simple method of looking at the world, it's a method which opens up the world. So what was that first experience when you were seven? That's a great question, and yeah, it's definitely a pivotal one because it can affect your judgment of how you look at science books. And so I went up there. I was about yeah, I was about seven, and they were making dinner downstairs. And, and as soon as I am, um, I, I I got a few off the shelf. I didn't really know what I was looking at. I didn't know what I was looking for. I had no agenda on mind. I just wanted to just to see what it's about. And I turned to one of the, one of them was a GCSE maths book, and I absolutely loved the diagrams. I just really engaged with um, it pictorially, and I loved the patterns of it. And I thought, yeah, I feel like that today. I feel like that that graph that look, apparently is a sine graph. But I'm like, yeah, if we squeeze that sine graph in the space of a minute, yeah, that's my life right there. And when I was seven, I just it looked like it looked a bit weird actually because you see this seven-year-old Millie or and then I'd just be like looking at the pages and trying to squeeze them together squeeze the diagrams together to try and kind of be within the book to bathe myself within that graph because I feel like that was what I felt every minute and so I really engaged with it on a, on a very tangible level and to be able to look at the equations and make sense of them and even though I'm not saying, oh, yeah, tan X. This is, I know this is tan X. It's like, that's a language that I'm probably going to understand more than humans because it's very simple and consistent. And I thought, brilliant. And another book was a book called Stephen Hawking's Brief History of Time. And it, that was the first one because I was asking my dad, um, you know, as a child does, why is the sky blue? Why is this? And I think that's why I went upstairs, actually, to look at my uncle's science book. Because he was like, oh, Uncle Mike has got... Um, a couple of books on that and Uncle John and I was like okay cool and so I just found that book and I just kept touching the pages and getting familiar with the pictures and the languages that I understood and then over time the more I read it and the more I knew how to read I I read it and it became very familiar to me it made sense. That seems an interesting because I sometimes wonder with science education, there are a lot of big ideas that are not talked about, sometimes until degrees, sometimes someone like Faye Dowker at Imperial, you know, she won't be dealing with general relativity until the third year in, in, in physics and the excitement in that room, you know, is, is one. But what is that familiarity, that fact that it doesn't matter that as a seven-year-old, you might not understand that just the bit of not being scared of the look of an equation, the look of certain graphs, just that, that the fact that they are, because I, I do feel sometimes that's a problem with, with science, which is there is a point of quite early alienation in children where suddenly at 13, very often it's around 12, 13, science education changes. Suddenly it's not looking at leaves uh, or looking at frog spawn. It's, and now here are equations and people go, whoa, and they, they can't engage. And it seems to me that you know part of your experience as well is just, right, this, this is, I don't understand this yet but I'm not scared of it. 
I'm not scared of it. And also, it's one of those things where, yeah, the lack of fear, but also I didn't even know what I had to understand. There was no pressure to understand. I just was happy looking at the pages, absorbing myself in the words that I knew I could wrap around and understand, and then slowly make sense of it. And they form their own narrative. For example, like seeing that quote um, that I mentioned in one of my chapters, um, that nothing is ever at rest. And I was like, yeah. Nothing is ever at rest. And it just got me. It can be one line in a book that I fish out, that I smell out. It doesn't have to be the whole book. It's not like, oh, I'm reading it back to front. I can just, it's like fishing. And then when you find that line, you wear it until you next come to that book. And then, for example, nothing is ever at rest. And it used to ponder my mind. I was like, but I'm at rest now, but dad's in the kitchen. But then if dad was here right now, then, then Uncle Mike would still be walking around. But and then I'd be like, well, if if the whole family was at rest and then it would just occupy my mind. And from that, you can just string a whole philosophy of thought from that one sentence and open up a world to understand more about that book and more books. And so you don't have to understand equations. It's just opening up to a sentence. I totally agree with you with that nothing is at rest idea, which I didn't come across till I was, you know, way into adulthood. That sudden moment that there is there is no centre of stillness anywhere where you are. You know, each time you pull out and whether it's, you know, we're moving around the sun, but then the sun is moving around the galaxy, then the galaxies are moving around the galaxies. And then, as you said, everything inside and you look at brown. Brownian motion seems like such a boring experiment when they do it at school, when they scatter the pollen seeds. Uh and then when you discover the implications of that, which very rarely, it might have changed now, but talking to teachers, I still don't think the implications of everything is moving and nothing, the, 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 the atom that is the stillest atom is still not still. Yes. And it can get, it's, it's, it's mind boggling really, because it's something that we, we assume that everything's just still and we want it to be, and, but it, it's not. And I think that's a quite a good metaphor generally for life because you, you never feel like you're at rest. And when you're at rest, your mind is never at rest. <laughs> and I feel like, um, for example, um, so Brownian motion, I think I mentioned that in one of my chapters on molecular dynamics and crowds. And it was something that I, yeah it was it, it was a curiosity of how things move yeah so for example that one sentence in that one book that that could you know that could kind of spread out into me wanting to know about movement I'm like what is it about movement so it's about the curiosity that you that you harness that you, that you naturally harbor to harness ser- serendipity of thought so that it expands and I think and then, and then you read another line in Hawking, and then it's, and then it mentions about the universe expanding, and then you're like, wait a minute, whoa, this is another bridge of thought, and then it just gets bigger and bigger and bigger, and you get addicted to that. And I didn't really care whether it's right or wrong. I just loved the feeling of being caught up in sentences that just tied my days together. Mm. Now that is uh, oh the expanding universe. We could talk. I, I was I can't remember what I was reading the, the other day, which I think it's uh, might have been in Katie Mack's new book about the end of the universe, where realizing that what we have now is we're a very lucky species because the way that universe expanded means there are things that we can observe in terms of that we know the universe is expanding, and then there will be a point where because things are so far apart. A species may well exist in the universe which is never able to know that we're exp- or it's almost impossible to observe that we're all of those things you're right each one 
it, it the, the depth of understanding is not as exciting is it's not as is something you shouldn't worry about rather as much as enjoying this the, the ride of what can seem to me and I don't know about you but some days are perpetual revelation yes yes Oh, completely. That's a great way of saying it. It was a perpetual revelation, and and for example, I didn't understand. I didn't um, even have the awareness that I was I was interpreting interpreting it in a different way. For example, nothing is ever at rest. I mean, a physicist will interpret that differently to a mathematician, to a biologist. But to me, I was like, I I did it in a very physical, tangible way that I understood. But that because it hasn't got an equation attached to it, because it's probably not an answer you'd put in an exam paper. That doesn't mean it's any less valid. So I feel like it's being able to um, let yourself think in a way which is not constricted by the outcome. I have no sense of outcome. And I think sometimes I don't have that generally, and especially when I do household chores, because even doing the dishes, I'm like, what does I, where do I want to put up my drying rack? What do I want it to look like? And so I feel like lack of, out, lack of vision outcome and also interpreting it very literally enabled me to directly translate what I was thinking into a different kind of world that kind of built my current world from the ground up. So it's no, it's, it's no filter. I interpreted it literally and it, it worked for me. Well, you you were saying so. Seven years old, you start seeing the, the, these these wonderful graphs in books and and, and start getting engaged with that. And then at eight years old is when you were you were diagnosed as being on on the autistic spectrum. And from that, can I ask you about that moment of diagnosis? How, or indeed that period of time after that that diagnosis, how you saw? Did you the changing of yourself by being being given you know being told this? Did that did that in some ways was it more enabling or at times more disabling to to have that just for you personally without even thinking about uh other people's reaction uh no i was pretty much the same i carried on um that sense of being labeled was i was like all right um and i think that was actually a blessing in disguise because of my um autism i was like all right it's just another label that they're using and i'll just leave them to it um, but in, indirectly, um, my, it really helped my family understand what was going on from their point of view because they were like, she's a little bit different and we want to enable her from that. They need a diagnosis so that they know how to act um, because I was just busy just being me and, and, and that was fine because I was a child and, I, and, and as a child, I think I, I've been very lucky to be diagnosed early so that I could just have the right to be and feel that I could just be me whereas if you're diagnosed later in life I think it's a lot useful because a lot more useful because then you're like what well, I feel weird why am I behaving this way you start to question and judge yourself a lot more and I think having that diagnosis does create that sense of relief and enablement but when you're a child and you have already no sense of labeling or social abstraction you don't really I didn't really notice it I just carried on being me and then suddenly I had more support. I was like, oh, I got more support. Oh, oh, that makes things easier. Brilliant. But that was because of my mum, my dad. Mm. The um, Now using science, using the scientific method to navigate the world. So because a lot of, you know, a lot of this book is, is, is not about 
navigating the, the cosmos at large it is about navigating it i mean like i love this in how not to follow the crowd any book where i look and it says molecular dynamics conformity and individuality is a subtitle i think this is going to be an interesting uh trip that i'm going to be taking i mean well well for instance those moments where in the chapter which where you, where you start off and you talk about uh for instance an, an umbrella uh the, the 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 loss of an umbrella and you see uh, the the reaction of someone else who's who's saying it's just an umbrella, and you now need to work out your way of going. Well, this is not to you. This is not merely something that can be repurchased. There is attachment to this, and you kind of work through also trying to translate for someone else your relationship and explaining. So, so, so I wondered about. Uh, well, let, well, why don't we talk about that, for instance, so th- that particular story? Yeah. So, for example, that chapter on empathy, and a lot of people find empathy to be the, be- the ability to hug and be warm, and to, you know, and to I, I, I don't know. The, there's two types of empathy: the one in which we think we've got empathy, and the other one in which we actually calculate what a person needs and how can we kind of coerce our behaviours to 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 meet their needs, and to do that it's actually quite hard initially because you don't know the person but ultimately it does require the ability to know what that person needs and as someone who is inherently got no preconceptions but a lot of a lot of care you need you want to model this you're like how can i model this i want to make sure that this person is happy i want to make sure that their met their needs are met but i don't know what their needs are and so you start to build this model and from that I used Bayesian mathematics and also the principles of cellular evolution. And you're like, okay, why why do I want to use these two? And what has that got to do with someone crying in the corner or wanting, you know, a a hug? It's all, and the umbrella was a metaphor or was actually a a real life uh, event that actually happened where I loved my umbrella. I I love it. I think it's great. Um, It was perfect for all weathers and I didn't, I, I use it I don't know, as a kind of a mascot when I go out because you never know when you need an umbrella. To, I have to shove people out of the way <laughs> or to hold it on the tube. And for me, it was a valued item, much like someone would, you know, the, 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 you know a, a car to someone else to keep, you know, that makes them feel good and safe and, and I don't know, valid in the world. And when someone breaks that, you're like, wait a minute, no, that's my sense of security. And they're like, oh, it's an umbrella. And then you're invalidating what I find important. So it's not about the umbrella. It's not about the car. It's not about the shoes. It's about normalizing it to how the person feels. And from that, I, I, and I made that link from looking at all the patterns, um, looking at, you know, um, in, in Bayes' theorem of, of what can make a person happy. It's all about what they find important. So it's valuing that and validating that. And this will get easier over time because over time you'll have a more specialized relationship with that person because then you'll know a bit more about them and you'll know the conditions and in different environments that they're happy or they're sad and can predict, hopefully, what to do when they're, they're, they're either of those things. So, yeah, it was an exercise, an experiment, a journey that I, I tried to model using base theorem and cellular evolution in order to make people feel valued regardless of what it was 
Now, what what I found particularly useful about the book is, uh, I mean, uh, uh, when you say at one point I was someone who had to learn people and human behaviour as a foreign language, um, it seems to me whether someone would be considered to be neurotypical or neurodiverse, one of the things, especially if you are, especially if you you definitely believe that you are utterly, averagely normal. You know, once someone believes that they are exactly as all people are, they very often don't question why they do what they do and how they interact with people and to me this seems like some of the armory that this book gives is it's it says to me you we need to question why is that person behaving like that why am i behaving like this why is the world and and it i I felt each chapter had that sentiment within it which is whether neurotypical or neurodiverse we, we need to have a greater awareness of what is going on and why things are as they are Yes, um, thank you for saying that. I appreciate you saying that because I really try to make it translatable, not as a book to make make awareness to autism, but also for people that, that don't have um, um, neurodivergences that are like normal. They're like, oh, they're reading it to help their friends. But when they read it, they're like, hang on a minute, I, this is translatable to me. Um, but yeah, it's about the ability to question what the, the, the things that they take for granted the norms that they assume, the preconceptions that they harbour, and in turn, to question their own evolution. Because ultimately, you're reading a book to gain something. You're reading a book to find something. And ultimately, what we want from a book is to be able to self-reflect and question our current reality in order to look at things a little bit differently. And from that, I, I, you know, from highlighting this in the book through science, I, um, I'm really happy that you said that because that was actually my one of my aims. It works. It it, it definitely works. I mean, I I thought you know even that, um, you know, when you describe the fact that here we are with this supercomputer, what appears to be a supercomputer inside our skull, and yet so often the uh, the, the methods and and not often they're not conscious methods. The way you have to almost make some of our methods conscious. Because as as we move from gut instinct, emotion, etc., we have an ability to trip ourselves up in in a myriad uh, myriad ways. Yeah, no, definitely. It's um, well, that's the thing. It's the ability. This book is the pliers to be able to you know interrogate the thing, the threads of thought that we you know that that need to be pulled. So it's but it doesn't in a gentle way. I like to think. Um, I don't want it to be something that people are afraid of reading because because. Yeah, I want people to read it with the viewpoint of that it's not going to make them feel bad about themselves because some books people don't want to read because it's like, oh, no, I don't need to read that. Oh, But then I want it to be quite a gentle introduction to being like, oh, hang on, maybe I need to think about that. Just a little tiny um, thread of thought. I think it is. It, it is a very it, – it, it's, it's as you – like all, you know, good science books, it will – slightly change the vision of of your world and and it gives you and i, and I did think it was the it has the elements of, of a toolkit in it excuse me <clears throat> because i i felt at the end of each chapter there was something else another way of me going right now here's another angle another way uh another kind of uh, uh benign weapon in various different situations to to go Okay, this, this, this. I mean, it, it's interesting because I, I really think you know, not just the chapter on empathy. The book as a whole allows you to step not merely into your mind, but 
to have a greater number, a, a kind of you know more divergent way of looking at other people's minds as well. Yeah, uh, thank you. Um, yeah, no, I tried. Well, I yeah, it's it's a different way of modelling the mind and making people realise that it's not. So I used these scientific analogies in order to find my place within them as someone who had autism and ADHD. But then, by virtue of doing that, inherently, I, I helped define a bit more about. about the neurotypical brain with uh, with modeling it because that that was the aim of it really to be honest it wasn't just it wasn't like a process of self-reflection per se but it was more to do with externalizing the um ways in which i saw people and so that i could refer to it so it's actually more about neurotypicals in my eyes than it is about people with neurodivergences so yeah it's, it's definitely a hybrid and I, I did want to um, highlight that bridge. So it's a book for that, that everyone can take away from. And most importantly, uh, much like I saw sentences that kind of grabbed me in books, that like, for example, Stephen Hawking, I, I want people, I wanted to write it in a way that people could see sentences that they could relate to and be like, oh, yeah, I can do that sentence. I live that sentence. Let me read on. And then they make the link that I made. So I'm hoping that it's written in a way that people can grab it and do what I did with other books. Did you have, for someone who spent so much of their life uh, scrutinising things, did you still have moments uh, uh, writing this book of, of revelation for yourself in terms of changes of understanding? Yeah, so it was... Um, is quite so. This is actually the self-reflective process of the whole book. Funnily enough, because when I, you know, when you're trying to put all these things together, you're like, how do I order it? I actually used a, you know, a machine learning method to help me make the book in itself to to order what needed to go where. And um, yeah, it was um, it was definitely uh, a process that I gained a lot from. It's a bit like you know, much like uh, you got you got all the ingredients, but then when you organise them in a way in which is kind of you know a bit more a particular or linear or, or structured you're like you kind of create more space to see them in a different light mm-hmm. and to and and that's one of the things that I really enjoy about writing is that I love the chaos of it so that when you rearrange it you realize that there's a lot more to say and I think that's a, that's true for any um writing but also art but also opportunity of thought so I think the restructuring of it was actually the revelation because then you kind of have to commit to different fates of how the book is represented and how how you live your life I need to find some of that method as my current book's 30,000 words over so I definitely need to find uh, uh, some better system than the one I've been using Um, the book is out now it's very uh, deservedly been nominated I mentioned at the start for the Royal Society Prize Uh, Camilla thank you very much thank you so much for having me on here it's been it's been really lovely it's been really fun thanks for listening remember to check out all the stuff about nine lessons remember to go to patreon to support the show if you don't already to get an extended edition of this episode have a great week back soon with another new episode back on sunday at 3 p.m as always with the q a live stream hosted by robin and helen chersky Don't forget to rate and review uh, the podcast five stars on Apple Podcasts. That really helps us out as well. Have a great week. Bye for now. Thanks for listening. This podcast is part of the Cosmic Shambles Network.